0: Good morning, church. So over the coming year, we're gonna be reading through the story of the Bible together as a church. And today we're starting by looking at creation in Genesis chapter one and two. Each of us lives our lives in a story and we pursue that story's version of the good life. The, The stories we live in are shaped by a number of different factors, whether that's our culture, our past experiences, our friends, and more. And the story we live in shapes the way we view the world. That's what we talked about last week. The stories we live in shape the way that we see the good life. They shape the choices we try to make to get the good life. And we talked last week about how the Bible also tells a story. The Bible's story is meant to shape the story that each of our lives is living in. For many of us, we haven't been taught the Bible story too much during our lives. Maybe we know stories from the Bible, but we don't know how all those individual stories fit together into a bigger unified biblical story that can really shape and impact our lives today. And if we don't know the biblical story, it's not gonna be able to shape our lives as much as the alternative stories that we do know, because we do know a lot of other stories. We know the Disney story that the good life comes from finding true love and the path to finding true love, you know what it is, follow your heart. The good life according to Disney involves following your heart to find your one true love and live happily ever after. And we know the Hong Kong story, you know, the Hong Kong story with the best possible life starts with getting into the right preschool. After 8 to 10 years in the top international schools, you go to the top UK or US boarding school for high school, and then you study in the Ivy Leagues or Oxford or Cambridge for university. When you graduate from university, you get a top job as a doctor or a lawyer or a banker. And then around age 30 to 35, you find a spouse who is gorgeous and wealthy and has the right social connections to advance you even further in your field. In your late 30s, you have one to two kids together who can be your legacy, you start investing in their future so they can achieve their own Hong Kong dream as well. And once you've reached your financial goals in life, you retire and travel the world until you die. And as you live that out, if you have a lot of money left over, you contribute some of it to a charitable organization so your name can go on a building and future generations can remember how amazing and generous you were. The thing about stories is they have a power to capture our imaginations. We dream about living the good life that the stories we love offer us and those dreams shape our real world actions. If we only know these other stories but we don't know the Bible story, then our lives are gonna be lived under the criteria of these other stories rather than the Bible story. But if the Bible story is true, Living by any other story, it's a pathway to disappointment and in the end, death. If the Bible story is true, then the only true path to lasting joy and lasting happiness lies in living in the Bible story rather than these alternate stories. So we, as a church, we're going to be looking at the Bible's story over the rest of this year and hoping that as we do, we'll learn how to better live within that story. And today we're starting our journey through the Bible story by looking at creation. Let me just say up front: I know creation, it's a huge topic. We could do a year's worth of sermons on it and still not cover it in its entirety. And because of that, I invite you to see today's sermon as the start of a conversation about the Christian view of creation rather than the last word on this topic. And I also realize as we discuss creation, something a lot of people will wonder about is creation versus evolution. And yes, that's an important conversation, but it's not the main conversation the biblical author was trying to have when he wrote Genesis chapter one and two. So because of that, we're not really gonna focus on that question today. If you wanna know more about the Christian views of creation versus evolution, I wrote up a brief document this week that gives an overview on the topic. You can access it at our church website, thebridgechurch.hk. But what we are gonna focus on today is Genesis chapter one and two in the Bible, the story of creation. And what we're gonna see is that the Bible's story of creation calls us to worship, trust, and obedience. The Bible story of creation calls us to worship, trust, and obedience. And we're gonna look at how creation establishes God's rule, God's place, and God's people. These are themes that we're actually gonna track through the story of the Bible. We won't necessarily cover all of them by name every week, but these things will come back throughout our study of the Bible, God's rule, God's place, and God's people. And then once we look at those things, we'll see what our response should be to his work. So before we jump in, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you teach us things that we could not know without you speaking speaking to us about them pray that you would guide us today as we look at your word, give us wisdom and insight and transform us so that we can live inside your story in Jesus name. Amen. So as we start looking at the story of creation, the first thing that's important for us to see is that through creation, God establishes his rule. Now this from the start is something that flies in the face of our culture. Our culture loves freedom and autonomy. As a general rule, our culture does not like rules and does not want to be controlled by rules. Here's an example of of where we can see that really clearly in our culture. Our culture loves superhero movies. Think about how many superhero movies in the past few years feature a hero who has to break the rules to save everyone. Like from a few years ago, Spider- man Homecoming. Tony Stark, AKA Iron Man, the, the father mentor figure, again and again places restrictions and limitations on Peter Parker, AKA Spider-Man, on what he's allowed to do in fighting crime because Peter Parker's a kid and he doesn't know what he's doing. And again and again, Peter Parker ignores those instructions. Sometimes, yes, it goes badly and there are consequences, but overall it allows him to discover some major plots that the bad guys are doing. And in the end, Peter Parker ignores the rules ignores Tony Stark's instruction, and that allows him to be a hero who saves the world. The moral of the story, the good life is found in doing what you feel is right, even if you have to break all the rules to do it. Follow your heart and everything will be fine. Culture repeatedly tells us authority is bad, rules are bad, autonomy is the ideal. Being able to just follow your heart and do what you want is the best way to live. Our culture doesn't believe in the possibility of a kind and generous and good ruler over all. And if we say that we need to submit to authority, it labels us as conformists. But in contrast, the story of creation sets the precedent that God is in charge of everything everywhere. And it says the proper response of humanity and all creation is obedience and submission to his rule. I mean, look at the the first words of the Bible story. In the beginning, God. God is the first being to exist. He existed in the beginning. Because of that, God is the only reliable source for telling us what happened in the beginning. And in the beginning, God tells us that God is self-existing. Everything else that exists, the universe, the trees, angels, all of us, everything, came from God, everything that exists besides God exists because God chose for it to exist. God is the only being or object in all of existence that is self-existent. Everything else is dependent on an outside power, God, to keep it existing. God is the only one who doesn't need to rely on an outside power to keep on existing. And God as the pre-existing and self existing one establishes his rule over all of creation with his word. We see in verse two, that, that there's chaos and there is darkness at first and God looks out over this chaos and darkness and he speaks. And as he speaks, his words become actions. God says, let there be light, verse 3, and there is light. And it goes through six days of creation. Every command that God gives is accomplished as he speaks. Creation obediently submits to God's rule as he orders and arranges matter and as he creates life. And after creating everything else, God reaches down into the soil and he shapes man in his own image. And just as with the rest of creation, God's word is to be the source of rule in God's life. We see this in Genesis 1, 28 through 30. God speaks to them, God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And just as with the rest of creation, God's words lead to action right here. Look what it says right after that. Verse 30. And it was so. As soon as God finishes speaking to Adam, it happens. Everything that God says comes true. God's word blessing and commanding Adam establishes God's rule in Adam's life. And Adam, at least at first, submits willingly to God's rule. And God also establishes his rule with a command against something for Adam, a prohibition. And this is a command that's gonna be very important in the Bible story moving forward. We see this in Genesis chapter two, verses 16 through 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God gives one rule. It's not unreasonable. He doesn't flaunt his authority and ban Adam from enjoying the paradise in which he has been placed. He gives Adam access to all the fruit on all the trees in all the garden, except one. And why would God give that limitation? Well, he's giving Adam a choice, whether to live in this abundant, fruitful life under God's rule, or whether he'll rebel and trust himself more than God. Through creation, God establishes his rule. And as he creates, God not only establishes his rule, he also establishes his place. See, from the beginning, God is sovereign. He's the supreme ruler over everything, everywhere. He creates the heavens and the earth and everything that fills the heavens and the earth, it's created through God's word. God is in charge of everything in the entire universe. There's a Dutch theologian named Abraham Kuyper. He said there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Everything in existence, everywhere in the universe, belongs to God and is subject to him. But in creation, God reaches down and he prepares a special place that is his in a special way. This place is called the Garden of Eden. Eden, it's specially cultivated by God to be a home for his people. Eden is established as a paradise where God God will regularly come to meet with his people in person. How amazing is that? That God comes and walks with them and talks with them. Eden is the place where God lovingly instructs Adam and Eve and teaches them what it means to follow him and trust him. Yes, the whole universe is God's place, but Eden is God's place in a special sense. It's the place where God establishes his covenant with his people. It's the place where people recognize and celebrate the rule of God that's actually true everywhere. And so God in creation, he establishes his rule. He also establishes his place, a place where he and his people can be together in a covenant relationship. So we see God's rule, God's place, and then third, in creation, God establishes his people. I don't know if you've ever realized this, the biblical account of creation centers around humanity We have two accounts of creation, Genesis one has one, Genesis two has another. And it's really interesting because in Genesis one, it's sort of a least to greatest. It starts with less complex and it builds to more and more and more complex until you get to the climax of creation, the creation of man and woman in God's image. But the story of creation in Genesis two actually flips the story around. It starts with Adam and it shows how God works in the rest of creation to make the world fit for Adam to live in. And this account reaches its climax with the creation of the woman, the perfect companion for the man that God made. In both cases, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, the story builds to show how God makes all of creation as a suitable place for humanity to live a fruitful and blessed life. Because out of all creation, humanity is unique. Yes, God made humanity, just like God made everything else, but unlike everything else, humanity is made in God's image to rule over creation and demonstrate God's goodness to the rest of creation. Humanity, we as human beings, we're not just another part of creation, we're rulers. And there have been many theories over the years about what it means for us to exist in God's image. That's a massive topic. We can just cover a couple small parts of it today. First us existing in God's image means that in some way or ways we are like God. Which is incredible right like isn't that the deepest desire of the human heart that's the temptation that satan gave adam and eve in genesis 3. if you eat this fruit you will be like god but they were already like god because they existed in god's image you and i we are like god because we exist in god's image we are not god but we are designed to be like god in certain ways that nothing else in all of creation shares with us we are unique because we are like Second, our creation in God's image, it's connected to the rulership that God calls us to exercise over the rest of creation. You notice the command that God gave that we just looked at to, to rule over the earth. That's part of what is involved in us bearing God's image. And notice up until this point in the biblical story, the main thing we know about God is that he's the creator and that he brings order. Again and again, throughout Genesis one, he says, let there be, and whatever he names comes into existence. The whole story of creation it has such a strong focus on proper order. Notice in chapter one, verse two, the earth, it's, it's without form and it's void and it's dark, it's disordered. The rest of the creation story, it's not just about God making things that fill the earth, but it's about God properly ordering them and subduing them so that they do their job properly. That's why in chapter one, verse four, he doesn't just make light, but he separates the light from the darkness. He's giving them proper order, proper places where they belong. That's why in Genesis chapter one, the words according to their kinds show up 10 times, because God is so concerned, not just with making things, but with bringing proper order to the things that he made. God's not only the creator, he's the bringer of order. And the fact that we exist in his image means more, but certainly not less than the fact that we are to be creative and to bring order in the world. And when I say creative, I don't necessarily mean making art like painting or doing sculpture. I mean it more in the sense of doing good work well, doing good work well. So a computer programmer needs creativity to write a program that will do jobs properly. A helper or a stay-at-home mom needs creativity in figuring out how to make delicious filling meals on a budget. And anytime we do good work well, we are being creative, we are bringing order and living out part of it, what it means for us to exist in God's image. And because we exist in God's image, God intends for us to use our creative work to act as his representatives who can show the rest of creation how good and loving and generous and kind our God is. He places us as rulers over creation so that we can care for and cultivate and bring order to and bless the rest of creation. The third thing that's important to see about existing in God's image is that life in community is a key essential part of what it means for us to exist in God's image. Notice Genesis chapter one, verse 27. God doesn't just create an individual in his image. He creates male and female in his image. God, if you think about what God is like, this actually makes sense because God is a Trinity. One God, three persons. God is part of an eternal community. And so for us to exist in his image, we must be living in community as well. A big part of Genesis two, it's man's search for a companion. It's so prominent in the Bible story because God says right there in chapter two, verse 18, that it's not good for man to be alone. And a big part of the reason that it's not good for man to be alone is that man by himself or woman by herself can't fully display God's image to the rest of creation, which has big implications for us, not only as individuals, but also as a church. You cannot be the Christian that God made you to be by yourself. You can't even be the human that God intends for you to be by yourself. In order to really live out the identity that God created us to have, we need not only a relationship with God, but also relationships with other people. And you might be feeling like, oh, really? But notice the creation of community, it's one of the greatest blessings that God gives to humanity in the entire story of creation, right? I mean, you you realize in chapter two, Adam, he's going around, he's seeing everything in the garden, it's paradise, everything is wonderful. And yet it's not until he sees Eve that he finally calls out with praises for God, right? He's ruling over paradise, he sees everything, but it's not until verse 23 of chapter two, that he finally says, "At last, look what God made for for me. This is amazing. This is awesome." He's excited because community is such a gift and a blessing from God. And notice what's at the heart of the community that God gives to Adam and Eve. There's a total openness and honesty with one another. Chapter two, verse twenty-five: The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They were naked not only physically but spiritually emotionally with god with each other with themselves with the rest of creation they were true companions who had absolutely nothing to hide from anyone or anything obviously that's not the way the world is today you'll have to come back next week to find out what went wrong but even with everything that went wrong in creation we as human beings still have the awesome privilege of bearing God's image. And part of what it means to bear God's image properly is to live life in community with one another. And just taking a step back, notice how important this doctrine of creation in God's image is for the way we live life on a day-to-day basis, right? This creation in God's image, it goes so wildly against the story of human value and dignity that our culture tells. Because what does culture say? Where does it say we came from? It says we're the product of accident and chance. There was an explosion in space a few billion years ago. And because the cells happened to line up in a certain way, you exist now today. If that's the case, there is nothing special about humanity. We have no inherent value. Anything special about us is derived from what we can accomplish. It gives no grounds for human rights. I mean, think about it, in the USA right now, there's been lots of protesting and debate the past couple years about race relations because people feel, and it's true, black people are being mistreated by police and they've been mistreated historically in the USA. And they feel like something should be done to make sure that everyone gets treated equally regardless of skin color. If creation in God's image is true, then absolutely yes, everyone of all ethnic ethnic backgrounds deserves to be treated equally. We deserve to fight for proper racial reconciliation because all people have value as God's image bearers. If culture's story of human life as an accident is true, there's no reason to pursue proper race relations because if we are accidents of the universe, we're just smart animals. And in the animal kingdom, the strong prey on the weak. If we're just smart animals, then the stronger, more capable, smarter humans who can take advantage of others should prey on the weaker ones in order to advance ourselves. But if the Bible's story of humanity created in God's image is true, then justice for the oppressed, fighting for proper race relations, those are things that we must fight for because Every human being has inherent value, regardless of their skin color, regardless of what they've accomplished, regardless of anything else, they have value because they bear God's image. And notice this, this account of creation, it doesn't just center around the relationship between humanity and other people. It also focuses so strongly on the relationship between humanity and God, as God establishes his people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he was a German theologian. He says that if you look at Genesis one and Genesis two, he says the first account, that's Genesis one, it's about humankind for God. The second is about God for humankind. The first is about God, the creator and Lord. The second is about the fatherly God who is near at hand. The first is about humankind as the final work of God with the whole world created before humankind and leading up to humans creation. The second is just the other way around. In the beginning, humanity is created and around humankind, for the sake of humankind, God fashions animals and birds and lets the trees go, grow, sorry. Here's what he's saying. Genesis 1 teaches us how God created us for himself. Genesis 2 says God is for us. Genesis 1 says God is our creator and ruler. Genesis 2 says God is our father and provider and friend. Genesis 1 and 2, they lay the grounds of how we are to know and relate to God. They tell the same story from two different perspectives, but both stories are deeply concerned with the relationship between God and humanity that comes from creation. In both accounts, God is shown providing for humanity and establishing humans in a special relationship with him. He provides us with everything we need for life. He gives us companionship he helps us to be aware of him and, and have an ability to relate to him. He is generous to us. He doesn't just make man and plop him in a wasteland. No, he generously creates paradise for humanity to live in. He generously gives Adam and Eve access to all the trees in the garden, except one. He's not withholding. He's not with vindictive. He's generous to humanity as he seeks to establish a relationship with them. God's also gracious towards humanity. He doesn't just create Adam and Eve as robots who have no choice but to obey him. He gives them freedom. They have a genuine choice available to them. Will they obey and submit to God's rules or will they rebel against his authority and define good and evil for themselves? If you know anything about the Bible, you know that choice ends disastrously, but it's not because God left them uninformed. He graciously teaches them how to live properly within the freedom that he's given them by putting a boundary there for that protection, telling them, don't eat this fruit. It's not a mean thing that he does. It's not an evil thing that he does. It's a loving and protective thing because he doesn't want to see his creation suffer and die because he's generous and gracious and good. God creates people. He provides for them. He protects them. He establishes them as his people in a covenant with him. And Adam and Eve and all of us, we have a responsibility to respond properly to this generous and gracious provider, father, friend who created the universe. And what does a proper response look like? Well, the first proper response to God's work in creation is worship. Cause God is big. No one else can create like he did. No one else can rule like he does. No one else can bring order into chaos, light into darkness, matter out of nothingness and life out of nothing like he does. God is sovereign. Everything is under his rule. And yet despite how big he is, He is good. And he's generous and he's gracious and he cares for us and provides for us and our proper response to God's power and goodness is worship. And I'm not just talking about singing songs to him in church on Sundays, but that can be part of our response of worship. But what I'm talking about when I say worship is lives lived in proper response to his power and goodness that show these things to those around us. You know, for some reason in the church, there's been this belief historically that the physical side of life is disconnected from the spiritual life. And worship is something we do spiritually, but the physical can't really be worshiped because it's It's physical, not spiritual. But what we see in Genesis 1 and 2 is that God, the ultimate spiritual being, is the one who created the physical world, which means that all of life, including everything in the physical world, our work, our cooking, our cleaning, sex and sports, everything is inherently spiritual. There's no unspiritual part of life because all of life has been made by God. So worship, it's meant to be an all of life exercise, living all of our lives in response to God's worth, as a reflection of how amazing he is. Not just, worship is not just a Sunday morning thing. So a life of worship could involve things like showing generosity to people around us, because in creation, God was generous to us. Living in his image, we we act like him. Worship will also mean taking time each day to get to know God better. A great way to do that is by reading your Bibles. And if you haven't joined us yet, we have a church Bible reading plan this year that's taking us through the story of the Bible. If you haven't joined us yet, I encourage you get started this week. It's a great, reading our Bibles each day is a great way to respond in worship to the work that God's done in our lives. So through worship, another proper response to God's creation is trust. God is strong. He's capable of seeing his work through to completion. The God who rules and sustains the universe today, it's the same God who created the universe in the beginning. He completed his work then. We we can see that because he rested on the seventh day because his work was done. He will also complete his work now, which applies on a cosmic level in the universe, but also on an individual level. He completed the work of creation and he sustains the universe today. He's also going to complete the work that he's doing in each of our lives. Philippians chapter one, verse six, it says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Creation shows us that God is faithful to finish his work and powerful enough to see the job through. And just as he created the universe and everything else in it, seeing the task to, through to completion, he's going to finish the work that he's doing in each of our lives. The God who works to save us today from the consequences of our rebellion against him is the same God who saw creation through to completion so we can have confidence and trust in him. So a proper response involves worship, it involves trust, and then third, it involves obedience. As the source of life, God is owed our obedience. Adam and Eve in the garden, they owed God their obedience. His commands to them were good. Rule over everything I've made, fill the earth, enjoy the fruit of every tree except the tree of knowledge. And despite God's good commands, they failed to obey him. Think of how absurd that is. God puts them in paradise. He teaches them how to live properly there. And they decide that they want more and they disobey. It's ridiculous, right? But just as they owed God their obedience in the garden, each of us today owes God our obedience because God is still a God who created and sustains us. He still provides for us and obedience is our proper response to his work of creation. It's easy to look at Adam and Eve's sin in such amazing circumstances and be like, how can you get it so wrong? But our sin today is just as ridiculous. No, we don't live in the paradise of Eden anymore, but God is still God. God still gives good commands to us. God's commands are still given with the goal of giving us full and abundant lives. And I know we always find ways to justify our disobedience to ourselves. But disobeying God's commands is making a choice not to walk in the way of full, abundant life. It's a choice to choose death over life all disobedience is a decision to act against the commands of the generous gracious creator provider father friend who makes and sustains our life and despite how ridiculous and foolish it is for us to disobey him each of us still disobeys god every single day could be by acting selfishly rather than generously could be by deciding to set our own sexual standards rather than submitting to the ones that god established It could be by rebelling against the human authorities that God has placed in our lives. It could be in a number of other ways, but creation teaches us these sins are unacceptable. Thankfully, God doesn't just abandon us and send us straight to the death we deserve when we sin. He's still generous and gracious. He forgives, as we'll see in the weeks to come, God's forgiveness, it comes at a great cost to himself, but that's getting ahead of the story. Church, God's story, it's a big story. It has so much to say about who we are and how we're to live in response to it. And creation sets the foundation for this story. In the weeks to come, we're gonna look more at how this story unfolds and what that, the next steps of the story mean for our lives as well. But for now, let us remember in creation, God establishes his rule, his place, and his people. And our proper response is worship, trust, and obedience. And when we fail to do those things, let us rely on God's forgiveness in the times we fall short. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the good creator. Thank you that you are the gracious and generous creator. Thank you that you care so much for us who deserve nothing, but you're good to us and generous to us. God, I pray that you would teach us to obey with with worship and trust and obedience this week in response to your amazing work for us. Thank you that you love us. In Jesus' name, Amen.